Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. That's Psalm 28 on page 557. To you I call, O Lord my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I shall be like those who have gone down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands towards your most holy place. Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbours, but harbour malice in their hearts. Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring them back upon them what they deserve. Since they show no regard for the works of the Lord and what his hands have done, he will tear them down and never build them up again. Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy, and I will give thanks to him in song. The Lord is the strength of his people a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherds and carry them forever. As we stand together, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray for your help this morning. We pray that you would help us in the run-up to Christmas to think the way that you would like us to think and to pray the way you would like us to pray. And uh, we pray for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, do sit down. And uh, as you're sitting down, if you could be turning back to uh, page 557 and Psalm 28. Page 557. So you can uh, see, I think, that we're kind of getting in the mood for Christmas. You know, we have the tree. You notice this morning it's a little... uh, um, knitted crib underneath it, you know, very Christmassy. Yeah. In recent days, we've uh, consumed, already consumed much more than we ought to have done. Uh, certainly, I have. Uh, in the evenings, we've been greatly enjoying our carols by candlelight services. And uh, we, things started pretty well this morning, I think, uh, with a lovely traditional carol. But then we get to this. Then we read Psalm 28. And I guess you may have said to yourself, what are they thinking? What are they thinking? I wonder, could we have chosen a less Christmassy reading for the Sunday before Christmas? This is a psalm in which, in a season of goodwill, we pray this. You might turn over to it, verse 5 of the psalm. We pray that our enemies might be repaid for all their evil deeds. We're praying this. At Christmas, as one of our trainees quipped when they, when they heard that uh, we were doing this. So then, this morning, it's goodwill to all men, except for them. But of course, not everyone is in the mood for Christmas. There was a very poignant story in the news last week about uh, Alan Henning's family as they prepare for Christmas. You see, it was about this time last year that Alan set off for Syria on an aid mission And on the 3rd of October this year, as you well know, he was publicly beheaded by a man 
the tabloid newspapers are calling Jihadi John. Can you imagine what it must be like for that family in the run-up to Christmas? What they must be feeling at the moment? I do imagine they're struggling, really struggling, to feel any sense of goodwill. You see, it's not just me who's messing up the preparations for Christmas. There was that gunman in Sydney. As we were praying earlier, there was the Taliban in Pakistan killing 141 people at that school in Peshawar. All but nine of them were children. It's one of those news stories where you, you, you sort of turn to it. I don't know if this happens to you as well. And, and you're about to read it, but you, I just think, I just can't read it. It's just too horrible. It's too awful to contemplate. Now, in connection with what happened in Sydney, there was uh, last week in the Church of England newspaper a headline that read like this. It said, Australian Archbishop urges God to punish terrorists. I think the implied question behind that headline was, can it be right for a Christian leader to pray like that? You know, that, that kind of grates with us, doesn't it? Didn't Jesus say something about loving our enemies, praying for their good? So I wonder how that headline makes you feel. Australian Archbishop urges God to punish terrorists. Does it make you feel awkward? Embarrassed? Can we pray like that? Can we possibly pray the way that David prays in in Psalm 28? I want to persuade you this morning that we can. And actually, thinking about this will help us prepare for Christmas. The real Christmas, that is. The one where we pray goodwill to all men and all people and we actually mean it. So like the other Psalms in this series, this little series that we've been doing, Psalm 28 is going to teach us, I think, how to think and how to pray in the face of all these difficulties in the real world. Back in Psalm 25, a few weeks ago now, Psalm 25 taught us to pray about our thoughts of guilt. Psalm 26 taught us how to pray about our feelings of injustice. Psalm 27 last week taught us how to pray about our fears. Well, this time David is going to teach us to pray about our anger. Those thoughts of fear and injustice and anger brought about by the wickedness of the world. And I want us to see this morning that Psalm 28 will help us to do three things in the time of fear and anger. It's going to help us first to cry out for mercy. And then second, to pray for salvation and justice. And then finally, to praise God for his salvation and justice. So three parts uh, this morning. This then is a psalm for the world as it really is. And uh, I hope we're going to see a progression in how David is thinking through this psalm. As he moves from despairing of salvation and justice at the beginning, then to praying about it. Finally, to giving praise and thanks for it. So I think there is some hope as we join David on this journey. He can take us in a similar path from despair to prayer to praise. But we have to begin where he begins, and that's by being honest. Pray this way, begin this way, says David, and cry out for, verse, cry out for mercy. Verses 1 and 2 of the psalm, cry out for mercy. You see, David knows just how valuable salvation and justice are, so he doesn't hold back at the beginning of the psalm when he fears they may not come. To you I call, 
O Lord, my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I shall be like those who have gone down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift my hands towards your most holy place. David's caught up in this storm, a storm of despair. And in the turmoil, there seemed to be only one sort of fixed and stable point that he can turn to. So David calls out to that fixed and stable point. He turns to his Lord, his rock. And uh, I imagine we can almost hear the fear in his voice as he does so. His greatest fear, we can see here, is to hear no answer to his prayer. That, he says, would be like going down to the pit, to the gates of death. But where can the Lord be found in that storm? Well, as we were seeing last week, at the time David was praying, well, that was the tabernacle, the tent, a tent right at the heart of God's people. And deep inside the tabernacle, hidden from sight, was the presence of the Lord in that place mentioned at the end of verse two, the most holy place. And so in his despair, David reaches out to the Lord in that place. He's reaching out empty-handed, desperate to be heard, but also knowing that he doesn't deserve to be. And so he cries out for mercy, pleading to the Lord for grace and favor. And these two verses do, I think, sum up David's approach to prayer in the time of trouble. We've seen this same approach across all four of the Psalms we've looked at in this little series. And if there's one thing I would love to characterize my own prayers, it's this. If there's one thing I'd love all of us to take away from this series on the Psalms, it's this. That our prayers would take on this unconditional, unreserved, unqualified openness before God. Reaching out to him, desperate and empty-handed. Now, a few weeks ago, at the start of this series, we began to think about some of the things that might hold us back in that kind of openness before God. Uh, We wondered, is it actually right to be using the Psalms to pray the way David does? Yes, we said. Well, so long as we think through about the difference that Jesus makes. We wondered, do we have to be open about everything? You know, even, even our deepest secrets? Well, yes, we said, why not? After all, he knows them anyway. And we wonder, shouldn't, shouldn't our prayers not be quite like this? Shouldn't our prayers be full of joy and happiness? Well, we said, not all the time. That's not the kind of world we live in. But even if uh, we can get over some of those obstacles to, to openness, I imagine there's still plenty more of them holding us back. I imagine, for example, that many of us simply don't think of prayer like this. You know, for us, prayers are sort of decorous, formal affairs. You know, we put on our Sunday best to pray. We censor our prayers. We put them through the laundry, if you like, before presenting them to God. The problem is, our lives are so threadbare and dirty and messy that if we put our prayers through the wash, really there's not a lot left on the other side. Just one or two ragged cliches and platitudes. Well, not so with David. I hope we've seen there's a a kind of gritty sincerity to David's prayers. They're open, they're emotional, they're real, they're messy. And that is, in fact, the only real and authentic way to approach our God. Uh, Paul Miller 
uh, puts it like this in his very good book on prayer, Praying Life, which I do recommend to you. He puts it like this. He says, instead of being paralyzed by who you are, begin with who you are. That's how the gospel works. These uh, verses in Psalm 28 do suggest another reason why we might hold back in this openness before God. And that's the fear and expectation of unanswered prayer. We've already seen David's fear in verse 1. He prays that that if God remains silent, that's going to be like death to him. And many of us, if not most of us, will know that feeling. We, you know, we pray in some urgent situation, but God seems silent. And so far as we can see, the prayer goes unheard and unanswered. And sometimes the disappointment for us is so intense, it feels like death to us. Now there's much, much to say about how God answers prayer and the problem of this apparently unanswered prayer and I really really feel like saying much much more about it now and let me do say if that is an issue for you do ask me about it later or or read Paul Miller's book which has much to say about it but I'll restrain myself to make just one simple point from Psalm 28 this morning about the fear of unanswered prayer and that's to point out that the solution that David gives us to that fear is To do what? Well, that's what we might expect, I guess. To pray about it, like he does. It's part of that package, isn't it? Part of that package that we include all of our fears and disappointments and bitterness in our openness before him, including our fear about being unanswered or unheard. Certainly, David's saying to us, don't let those things stop you from praying. In fact, let me say more generally, if you're you're not praying at the moment... Because for some reason you just feel that you're not in quite the right place to do it. Perhaps you feel too low, or you feel too angry, or you feel too weak, or you feel too sinful or too tired. Well, I hope you're beginning to pick up that these psalms are encouraging us. That is actually the perfect place to start praying. The place of desperation is the place to start engaging with our merciful God, reaching out to him, empty-handed, utterly open, unreserved, for us pleading for mercy, pleading for the mercy not to be found in the most holy place, but the most holy person, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I wonder, still we might be wondering, how far should this openness before God go? Does it include everything? I mean, really everything? Should it include our darkest thoughts? Our our anger towards other people, for example? Uh, Especially those who have or would hurt us? An anger which may even verge on on hatred. And and when those thoughts come to us, we're really not at all sure whether those thoughts are good or, or bad. Should we be open about that? Well, yes, says David, even that. And that takes us right to the, to the heart of this psalm as we learn from David how to pray for salvation and justice. Verses three through to five, pray for salvation and justice. Now, I suppose these are the, these are the verses in particular in the psalm that may, might make us stumble. And I hope we're gonna say there is more 
that we can say as disciples of Jesus about praying for our enemies than David says here. And I hope we will see that a little later. Nonetheless, I do want to try and persuade you this morning that it is good for us to pray the way David prays here. This is certainly a good place to start. So let's begin by reminding ourselves what David actually prays for here. So you see that verse three, David expresses his fear about being dragged away with the wicked, with those who do evil, he says, who speak cordially with their neighbours but harbour malice in their hearts. But I suppose it's reading, especially from verse four, that might make us hesitate here. Can we really pray what David prays here? Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back upon them what they deserve since they show no regard for the the works of the Lord and what his hands have done, he will tear them down and never build them up again. So let me uh, try to give the case for praying like this. Three quick points um, related to each each of these verses in the middle of the psalm. First then, let me say that praying like this helps us to articulate our fears about being dragged down by the wicked. So verse three again. Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, but speak cordially with their neighbours, but harbour malice in their hearts. This is good to pray. This is good to pray because it's realistic about the nature of evil and realistic about our vulnerability in the face of it. So the nature of evil, when you think about it, is to desire destruction. And when evil takes over someone's heart, it becomes, I guess, a little bit like a whirlpool, dragging everything and everyone around it into its self-destructive center. But sometimes that evil comes to us with cordial words and a smiling face. We can be very vulnerable to it, vulnerable to being deceived by it, vulnerable to getting sucked into it ourselves. So it's good, it's good to pray that we might be protected from us, as we do, of course, in the Lord's Prayer, as we did earlier today. Deliver us from evil, we pray. Second, and this is really, I think, the key to understanding this psalm and answering the kind of questions we might have about it. This really is the center of it. Praying like this redirects our anger and it keeps us from revenge and retaliation. An angry thought which was originally directed at our enemies can be channeled instead through God. That's the really, really important thing to notice here. That David doesn't repay his enemies for their evil deeds. He doesn't take revenge on them. Instead, he prays to the Lord. You, Lord, you, verse 4, Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back upon them for what they deserve. You see, our natural tendency when someone harms us or harms someone we love is, I I, I guess, to to want to do a kind of Bruce Willis on them. You know, to sort of wipe them out. Wipe them from the face of the earth. I don't know if some, some of you may remember their character, Jim Malone, he was played by Sean Connery in the film The Untouchables, sort of set in uh, Prohibition-era uh, Chicago. And there's some famous lines in that film which go like this. Uh, Jim Malone says this, 
He says, here's how you get Capone. He pulls a knife. You pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's how you get Capone. But of course, that's not just the Chicago way. That's not just 1920s America. And let's face it, that's how our world works. Violence breeding violence. Each round more intense than the round before. We're seeing it all the time. So what can break that destructive cycle? Well, one thing, one very important thing. Pray like this. Pray like this. Open up your anger, those desires for destructive revenge, to the Lord, knowing that he's going to deal with it perfectly. You see, unlike our kind of wild and often excessive judgments, the justice of the Lord is is perfectly proportional, giving the wrongdoers, David prays in verse 4, precisely what they deserve, no more, no less. This is not just an Old Testament idea. We're encouraged to to respond to evil this way in the New Testament too. Listen to this from the Apostle Paul. This is Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. He says this, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Or think about what we've been learning from 1 Peter this term. To entrust ourselves, to whom? To the one who judges justly. Okay then, so here's a a third and final reason why praying like this is good. And this is that praying like this filters out our our mixed sense of justice. You see, when we get angry because of evil, our motives are very, very mixed, aren't they? You know, it may be a, a, a personal affront or hurt pride that's driving our anger, for example, more than anything else. And I suppose there is a danger, isn't there, that we could be praying, praying to the Lord to settle some conflict in our favor, as if it was all about us. Well, if so, then praying like this, praying like David does, should put things straight. Because what makes something wicked, as David makes very clear here, is not in the end what it does to us, but what it does to the Lord. Verse five again. This is how to understand evil. Since they show no regard for the works of the Lord and what his hands have done, he will tear them down and he will never build them up again. And of course, when we stop and think about it, that that also humbles us. Uh, You see, we like to think about the wicked as uh, those out there. You know, those who are distant from us. But of course, all of us have in many ways and at many times disregarded the Lord and the works of the Lord. So as we pray for justice, we also have to pray for mercy for ourselves, just as David did right back at the beginning of the psalm in verse 2. So I do want to claim this morning that praying like this is a good thing. And it does seem to have been good for David, cathartic even. Remember he began in despair, a state of despair about salvation and justice. Uh, Next he prayed for salvation and justice. And now finally verses 6 through to 9, he's able to praise God for salvation and justice. Verses six to nine, praise God for salvation and justice. Praise be to the Lord, 
says David, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy and I will give thanks to him in song. David, remember, is the Lord's anointed. She reminds us here in verse eight. In Hebrew, he is the Messiah. In Greek, the Christ. And he has been under attack by wicked men. But he has entrusted himself to the Lord, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. And he is now so sure that his cry has been heard that his heart leaps and he bursts out in praise and joy. And he goes on to pray that all his people could be caught up in the same wonderful salvation that he has been. Verse 9, the Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. So now, at last, we can get a little Christmassy. Because Christmas, of course, is all about celebrating the birth of the one in David's line, the promised king or Messiah, Jesus, who was under attack from wicked men from his very, very earliest years, but was the one who entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, even more perfectly than David does here. And he was vindicated And he did it to draw God's people into his salvation. I've argued this morning that it is good to pray the the way David does in Psalm 28. But I want to finish by thinking about how the true message of Jesus can deepen and extend the way we can pray for salvation and justice like this. And it all depends. It all depends on remembering that what Jesus particularly came to do was to die to give himself as a ransom for many, bearing the punishment for sins deserved by those he came to save. It's the truth I think we don't hear enough of at Christmas. It's a a truth that's something that Christians have become sadly coy about, perhaps even embarrassed about. But actually, it's the key to the Christmas message of peace and goodwill for all people. And the key to praying for those things. So this is the question I guess we're trying to face, isn't it? You know, when we are consumed by anger because of the actions of wicked people, how should we pray? Well, it is good to pray for justice as David does here. And the New Testament encourages us to do that too. We've seen that already. But as Christians, we can pray with an even greater confidence that justice will come. You see, our Father in heaven is so concerned for justice that he sent his one and only Son to take the punishment we deserve for our sins so that he could show mercy on us without in the slightest compromising on his justice. And what does that mean? Well, that means that we can respond to events like the the Peshawar school attack knowing that, that justice is guaranteed That God has set a day to judge the whole world and bring that justice about. So yes, we can pray for the authorities to exercise justice now because that's the role given to them. But we can also be sure that even if they fail, whatever happens, no one will escape the justice of God. His concern for it is so strong and Christmas confirms that to us. But remembering at Christmas that the one who came to die for our sins opens up 
uh, an extra and very radical possibility. You see, what it means is I can, I can take the most violent, the most barbaric person I can think of. And I, I can pray for justice. I can pray for the full, proportional, just judgment of God to come upon them. You know, everything they deserve, just as David does here. Everything. But I can also, and this is the remarkable thing, I can also pray for mercy on them. Extraordinary, isn't it? I can pray that they would entrust themselves to Jesus and that that just punishment will will fall not on them, but on him. Now, I know that uh, David would have prayed for mercy on his enemies too. I'm sure he prayed that for Saul, for example. But because of Jesus, for us, the possibility is so much more clear that even the worst and most distant of our enemies might find the same mercy that we found in the Lord Jesus. I don't know what you think about that. It might horrify you at at first when you think through some of the consequences. So I've got a picture in my mind now, a photograph from the video of Jihadi John. And I'm thinking to myself, could I even pray like this for him? The thought of showing any compassion for someone like that might at first repulse us. And it would certainly outrage many, many around us that we could do that. But it's a good test, isn't it? If we really understand Christmas, if we really understand the gospel, then compassion becomes possible even in the worst of circumstances. The same compassion, of course, that Jesus had on us when we showed no regard for the works of the Lord. So as we come to the end, let me ask you uh, this Christmas, uh, what kind of Christmas would you like in 2014? And let me give you two options as we finish. Here's the first one. Would you like what has now become the traditional Christmas? The escapist Christmas. When we distract ourselves from the horrors of the world with food and drink and toys. Uh, The one where we pretend just for a day that everyone is decent and nice and that we can all get on with each other. The one where we say peace and goodwill to all men but don't really mean it. Or would you like the real Christmas? The one where Jesus doesn't stay a baby, but grows to be hated and persecuted. The one where he dies for his people, taking the punishment for sins that they deserve. You see, the real Christmas engages with and deals with the horrors of life, rather than distracting us from them. In the real Christmas, we can say peace and goodwill, and we can actually mean it. It encompasses even the worst of sinners, even us, who just like the very worst and most barbaric sinners, have also at some time disregarded the Lord and all that he has done. And I have to say that the first of those options makes my heart sink. But the second... And here I am able to echo David. Makes my heart leap for joy. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this Christmas season, uh, but in a broken world, a very broken world, with many horrors going on around us, we do pray for justice. Thinking of Pakistan, of Sydney, Iraq, Iran, but many, many other places too, and places closer to home. We pray for your perfect, proportional, and just justice. But we also thank you that because of Christmas, because of the Lord Jesus, without compromising any of that, we can also pray for mercy, even on the worst of sinners, even for ourselves. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.